0: turning this evening to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, and verse 9. Luke, chapter 20, verse 9. Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and let it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. And we're considering this evening difficulties or obstructions in finding the Lord. This parable is recorded in three Gospels. It was given during the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. He had just thrown out the money changers and the cattle, animal merchants from the temple who were doing their great trade. And he was teaching. And among the things that he taught was the gospel, according to the record of Luke. Now, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees were furious and wanted him dead, but they could not take him openly because, of course, uh, he was so favoured by the masses, by the people. Not surprisingly, after three years of uh, compassionate miracles where thousands of people were healed, people from all kinds of illnesses, all kinds of maladies, terrible deformities, even raisings from the dead. And small wonder that the people at that moment, they were fickle in their outlook, but they were all behind him. So the plans would have to be made that Christ would be taken by night. Of course, he would be willing to be arrested and subjected to those unjust trials and then crucified and slain. It was his purpose. It was the plan and purpose of God, as I'm sure you know, that he would come in order to make a substitutionary sacrifice of himself for the sins of all who would ever be forgiven. You know that God in his holiness cannot overlook sin, and yet God desires to show his love upon millions and millions of people and forgive them and save them. And how can he do it? With sin and guilt in the way. It would be contrary to his holy character and being to overlook sin. His indignation is against it. And Almighty God, the only solution to that is for Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, equally God, equally divine, to come into this world, the world that he made, and to take upon himself human personality and flesh and to be our representative, our substitute, and to go to Calvary's cross and call upon his Father to pour out the eternal punishment of sin hideously compressed upon him and he would take it for all who he would save, all who we would transform down the rolling centuries and bring to know himself and take ultimately to heavenly glory. Well, he was ready to go. Of course, the chief priests, they didn't know that. And they realized that if they were to take him at all, this was the plan, they would do it by night. It would be unseen. And then, perhaps, if he's seen, humiliated, and beaten, and bound, as a fugitive, as a criminal, well, then, perhaps, the tide would turn. And the people would lose their deep respect and awe that they held him in and accept the inevitable that the chief priests and the scribes would cry out for his death. Well, that's the background to the parable. And so he gives this parable primarily for them, for the chief priests, the Pharisees, The scribes, the Sanhedrin council of the Jews. He gives it to them. Here it is, verse 9. A certain man, later described as the Lord of this vineyard, planted a vineyard. It's of his own creation. He has done it. He's bestowed, you may imagine, special care upon it. And in the course of time... He decides to let it out to tenant farmers, husbandmen in our King James Version, vineyard dressers in other versions. Same thing, really, and went into a far country for a long time. That's the background of the parable. As I shall show, it describes us. It's a great picture, though primarily it describes those leading Jews, the principal clergy of the Jewish church at the time. Verse 10, and at the season, the Lord, the owner, sent a servant to the husbandman that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. Well, the proceeds, the rent at least, the portion that fell to the owner, I suppose there may have been a season in the year when that was done, or every two years or whatever. And at that time, he sent for payment. Uh, But the husbandman beat that servant and sent him away empty. Whatever was in their minds, well, he's in a far country, and for a long time. He has no intention of coming back for a while. And they think to themselves, or seem to, He's not interested in us. If we seize these proceeds entirely and this vineyard, he won't take action from a long way away. He's not concerned about us in that way. And they gamble on that. Why, the distance and his absence has caused them to lose reality, sense of the real. And they feel, oh, he, he barely exists. They can forget him, dismiss him, dispose of him. And verse 11, again, he sent another servant. They beat him also. They're getting hardened to this. And treated him shamefully, humiliated him. Dare I say, maybe they thought that if this gets back to the owner, as it no doubt will, if the man can get back, that we've done this to him and that to him, then he'll be frightened off. He won't send anyone else for this kind of treatment. And again, verse 12, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Actually, that wasn't the end of it, because Matthew's gospel said there was yet another and implies yet another after that. And all the messengers get the same treatment. And they are abused and wounded and cast out and sent away empty-handed. Then the Lord of the vineyard says, What shall I do? Verse 13. I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. Yes, if you send your son and my beloved son it's the vineyard owner's only son. If you send the son, it's like going yourself. Now it's the family. And you'd think they'd say, well, this is remarkable. We've beaten the servants and he's come himself or in the person of his son. So, obviously... He's not going to destroy us for what we've done. He isn't sending a force against us. He isn't bringing the law down upon us. It's as if he's coming himself. We have to pull ourselves together. We have to be ready to bow before him and to apologize and to repent of this. There is perhaps some settlement for us in spite of our misbehaviour. That's how they should have thought, if the family is now sent, the son is now sent. But no, verse 14, when the husbandman saw him, they reasoned among themselves. It was a group decision. You wonder if any one of them, confronted with the family arriving might just break down and say we shouldn't have done this but you know it's a tendency of human beings you get into a group it emboldens you and so they reason together and they come to conclude the conclusion we can tough this out we can face down this owner this is the air come Let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. Finally, that distant, absent owner will give up. What a gamble. That's what they decide. And it's due partly to a group decision. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And the Lord says, and you know, As the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees listen to this, they know that the parable is spoken against them. They know that they are in the cast, that they are the husbandmen, and that God is the one who has left them and trusted them. And he's sent various influences to them, servants, the prophets of old, the many messengers that God sent calling upon the nation to repent and turn to him and serve him. And they've abused them and ignored them. And now Christ is telling us he is the Son and he has come and we are about to execute him. They understand what's going on in the parable How do we know? Well, verse 19, halfway through the verse, they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. They saw it. They got it. They saw the point. However, I'll come back to that. What shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and give the vineyard to others. And they said, God forbid. In other words, while they understood it, they didn't accept it. We understand what you're saying, Jesus of Nazareth. We understand what this story means and that it's against us. But it's a lie. It's not true. We are tremendous people and we are doing God's will. In their wickedness, they were so bigoted and so self-righteous, they wouldn't have it. God forbid that any of this should come to pass. And they rejected the message. Well, so much for them. The parable was against them. But it's also about us. All the way through, we answer to it in the same way. We're given wonderful things by the Lord in this world. We prayed along these lines earlier. We're given our lives. Life is from him. Conscious life. Do you have a tremendous memory? That's your special gift. Are you brilliant at IT and maths and all that? That's a gift from God. Not everyone may have that particular gift. Are you shrewd in business? Unusually so. That's a special gift, portioned to you by Almighty God. Are you good with letters and literature? Do you have a feel for it? Are you even poetic, imaginative, artistic? What's your gift? You've probably got a whole group of gifts that are special to you. No, that's me, you say. And you're proud of them. Oh, my me, look at what I can do. You never think. I owe homage and thanks to God. This is what I've given. This is my portion. It's all from God. And instead of thanking him, and instead of worshipping him, and instead of seeking him, instead of repenting of your sin and asking his forgiveness and giving him your life and living to learn of him and to love him and to experience him, you reject him and you say, he isn't there, I won't have him, I don't even want to believe in him, I want to express myself, do what I want to do, live as I want to live, have what I want to have. I don't want to be interfered with. I want my moral liberty to decide my own values and my own standards. I want my self-determination to do everything just as I want it. Well, God sends various messengers, influences into your life. Maybe sometimes you get depressed. Sometimes the bottom falls out of life. And you wonder... What is this life for? Have I got it right? Where is it going? Who am I? What is the object of life? That's maybe a shaft of influence, of warning, of invitation from Almighty God. And you shrug it off and kill it and ignore it. They killed the messengers They wanted to kill the sun. And we can be the same. Like them, we get together with others. They reasoned together. All the tenant farmers had a meeting. And they boosted each other up and egged each other on. Let's get rid of this sun. And that's what we do. We say to ourselves... I must get rid of thoughts of God. I must get rid of God. I must get rid of conscience. I must get rid of the idea, nagging me from time to time, that I owe him. And I need him. So you get together with others, and any item of literature or anything, influence you get, you hear which discredits God, which disputes his existence, which suggests that everything could have come about by natural processes and there is no God to consider, to worry about. You grasp at it. It's just like these people. The tenant farmers got together and, as a group decision, they rejected the sun. And that's what we do. Get propped up and help from others, from atheists from all kinds of th- sources so that we can get rid of God. How do you get rid of God? That's impossible, friends. What a gamble to get rid of God. Can you dismiss the sun and the sky and the moon? Of course not. Can you get rid of these mighty things how can you get rid of God lots of people have tried to get rid of Christ well there the chief priests delivered him to the Roman authority they put him to death he allowed it to happen for the very purpose I've already described and what happened he rose from the dead down the history of time Desperate measures have taken place to get rid of God. The Jewish leaders tried to get rid of Christ and the church, the young church. They utterly failed. It was they who fell in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. And the church of Christ proved to be indestructible. The Romans tried to get rid of the church of Christ In the end, they bowed the knee to it and succumbed to it and made it their official religion. I'm not sure that was a good thing either, but that's what happened. The whole might of Roman authority was ranged in persecution against the young church, and they failed to put Christ and his message to death. And so it's been throughout time. I can't spend time with this. You come all the way down to relatively modern times, the great crusade of communism to get rid of Christ, the great social experiment in the old Soviet Union. Well, Christ is still there and here, and that's gone. And so it is. In the cross of Christ, thy glory, said one, towering o'er the wrecks of time. And that's true. You can't get rid of Christ. One day you have to face him. You come to the end of life's journey and your soul is called into his presence and you have to give an account of the life lived. Have I sought him? Have I gone to him for forgiveness? Have I gone to him for life? Have I studied him, worshipped him, obeyed him, served him, loved him? Or have I rejected him and put him to death, as it were, in my mind? What have I done? You have to give account. I'm very taken by the words of the journalist, poet of years ago, James Montgomery, The arrow that shall lay me low Was shot from death's unerring bow the instant of my breath. And every moment I proceed, it tracks me with unceasing speed. I turn, it meets me. Death hath given such instinct to that dart. It points forever at my heart. And so it does. And I shall turn, and it will meet me, and it'll be for me. The appointment, it's often said that nobody makes but everybody keeps. The appointment with death and the moment I stand before God and I give account, it's a tragic, terrible thing to go through life putting Christ to death. And even the outwardly gentlest person who you'd think was mild, mannered and meek may be inside putting Christ to death dear friends don't be so foolish don't engage on such a foolhardy gamble God is there Christ is true don't sweep aside redeeming love The amazing price he paid to save souls. The loving kindness of the Lord, which is far beyond all human power to express. And put him out of your life and put him to death. That's tragic. What a waste it is of your life and every influence you've ever had. It's all here. I will send my beloved Son. It may be they will reverence Him when they see Him. Maybe you've seen Him insofar that these things have been told you. You know of Christ. You know what He did. You know of salvation. You know the message of God. But tragically, this is the heir Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. Well, God may seem a long way away because he is invisible. We cannot see him with physical eyes. Don't let that allow you to drift into unreality. He isn't there. I don't have to account to him. He hasn't got standards. I haven't broken his law. I haven't sinned against him. Don't let that bring you into unreality. He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. And he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written, The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Dear friends, don't put time before eternity. Don't put this material world before spiritual things. It is also foolish. Don't do it. And try to get rid of Almighty God. Don't confer with people who are against God they reasoned together and built each other up in antagonism against the landlord of the the vineyard don't root around with people who are against God and have thrust him out of their lives and let them build up your views and build you up in cynicism and antagonism that's foolishness seek for yourself, Don't let pride obstruct you from seeking the Lord. All you're saying is I'm going to have to repent. I'm going to have to grovel before God. I'm going to have to tell him I'm a lost sinner and I need a substitute to take my punishment so that I can be freed and made new and rebuilt. I'm going to have to acknowledge that I'm so bad I need a new life. a new beginning I'm not having that my pride won't let me accept that what a tragedy when pride cuts off our seeking after God don't like that let that happen and don't whatever you do just retreat into shallowness many people do they become light as a feather they don't think of profound things or spiritual things at all. They're perfectly happy to be propelled through life by the lightest of entertainment, the trashiest and most banal things. They don't want to think or have any depth or any root in life. They're trivial people, or they make themselves that. Shallow people. That's a comfortable way of evading my relationship with God and my duty to him. Don't be materialistic. Don't be trivial. Don't be foolish. Don't confer and join hands with the cynics and the atheists to help you get rid of God. Seek him, dear friends. That's what this parable is really about. It's a view of the Jewish leaders at that time, And it's a view of us. And it it has some positive words at the very end. The stone which the builders rejected, Christ was rejected and crucified, the same is become the head of the corner, the cornerstone, the pattern for a building, pattern for your life the pattern for the eternal heavenly kingdom. Christ is everything. Oh, dear friends, open your Bibles, read the New Testament, read about Christ, read about his power and his compassion and his love and his wisdom, read about his works, read about Calvary and his going to the cross and what he suffered to set us all free. Why, the person of Christ, he was God, of course, but he was man also. And view him as a man, if you wish. There's never been in the history of the world anyone like him, anyone worth serving and knowing as Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, how much we need him. Don't be those depicted in this parable. Come to him. Seek him. I tell you about a lady as I close who I heard about all maybe 35, 40 years ago when I was preaching in California and I was introduced to this uh, lady who had been converted a few years but uh, she had been um, uh, in her before her conversion she lived in a very beautiful place uh, so I'm told and it was way out of uh, Los Angeles up in a mountain range in a village that was exceedingly beautiful just for the very rich and wealthy and she had something that was her god in her life she had an amazing collection of Wedgwood China And we used to know here in this church years ago when he was alive, a man who was an expert in all that and he knew this lady, it turned out. And had had dealings with her. And she built up this uh, most valuable collection of Wedgwood over the years. I mean the real old Wedgwood. Not the things that cost £100 and £200 but 200,000 pounds and so on, the Etruscan looking brown ones, the really valuable ones. That's what they were into. And she would uh, view this collection almost on a daily basis. She told me so. It was her God. She had Christians in her family, and they would say to Auntie, You must trust in Christ and leave all that. You can't make that your God. That's not eternal. And she ignored them and laughed at them. And then, some of you may see what's coming. This is LA, this is California. In that region, there was a big earth tremor, a minor quake. This is right back in the late 70s. And she stood and watched all her insecurity cabinets. All her china just crumbled to dust. And she sat and wept for hours. And she got up. It was Sunday. And she went to her family's church. And she began to seek the Lord. In the mercy of God, she had her material idol broken. And she turned to him. And she found him. Don't have any idol. That takes you away from God. These are all hindrances to eternal safety. Come and find him now. To know him and to have him is to have life. And to have wonderful blessing from God. Turn to him. Repent before him. Don't kill him off in your mind. That's tragic. You need him, friends. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, look upon us all and bless us. Oh, Lord, whatever the hesitation, whatever the reason for our drawing back from Thee, our Creator, our God, oh, Lord, take it away and move in our hearts. And bring us in true repentance and sincere repentance to Christ our Saviour. Lord, bless tonight. Transform and save. Deal graciously with us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen.